John chapter 4. We're working our way through the gospel of John, this amazing gospel. And we're in John chapter 4, and we're going to start with verse 40 this morning. John chapter 4 and verse 40. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, It's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Maybe you've seen a TV show where they begin, I mean, it just starts with a climactic moment out of nowhere, just this climactic cliffhanging kind of a moment. And there's no context to it at all, and you're just kind of wondering, whoa, what's going on? And how did this happen? Where did this come from? How did we get here? And then the, then the screen will say two weeks earlier or three days earlier or earlier that day. And then the show will begin to unfold the plot, you know, and the events that led up to that climactic moment that you saw at the beginning. Well, that's kind of what we're going to do with John chapter 4 here. We just saw the climactic moment. Here's a Samaritan village, and you'll see the importance of that here in a moment. But here's a Samaritan village inviting Jesus to stay with them for a couple of days. And then they come out and they confess, this guy is the savior of the world. How does that happen? I mean, that's just mind-boggling. How in the world does that happen? Well, let's back up earlier, three days earlier. Let's back up to the beginning of the chapter, and we're going to see. We're working our way through John. In John chapter 4, this is the episode of Jesus with the woman at the well. Very familiar story to us, but there's a lot of text here. So this morning, we're going to do something a little bit different, and you kind of see that in the outline. The outline is different. Rather than uh, the typical sermonic structure, we're just going to roll through the passage and take it off a little bite at a time. And I'm just going to give basically a, a running commentary as we go. And we'll pull out some, uh, some takeaways, if you will, some walking points along the way. But there's a lot of ground to cover. So it's a little different this morning. But let's jump in. So John chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had, uh, had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away into Galilee. So we'll start there. So we start with some bad blood. We saw last week that there's a, there was a time when John the Baptist ministry overlapped with Jesus' ministry. We saw last week that at the same time that Jesus and his disciples were out in the Judean wilderness preaching, baptizing folks, that John the Baptist was out in the wilderness, probably more in the Samaritan region, but he's in the wilderness preaching and baptizing people at the same time and not very far apart. And we saw last week that Jesus is gaining popularity. In fact, John's disciples were getting pretty frustrated that some of John's disciples were going out to hear Jesus. And so we dealt with that last week. And then we see here in chapter 4, Jesus hears that the Pharisees know that his popularity is, is, is starting to surpass John's popularity. And so Jesus decides it's time to go north. Now, Jesus knows that, that the Pharisees have already targeted John the Baptist. He's already on their radar. They've sent out folks to investigate and so forth. So he's already on their radar. And Jesus is preempting a premature showdown with the Pharisees and the religious leaders. And so Jesus is going to go from Judah in the south to Galilee in the north. And what I want you to see, here's a, here's a takeaway, this, what we see in the first three verses, is that Jesus is setting the schedule. As you read the Gospels, you'll find out that, that the cross was not an accident. 
that, that, the, that the crucifixion didn't take Jesus by surprise. He wasn't overcome by events. He didn't misread the situation. That Jesus was in control all along the way. He knew why he came. He knew what was waiting for him in Jerusalem. He told his disciples on several occasions what was going to happen in Jerusalem. Jesus is setting the schedule. So he's going to leave Judah in the south, the, back, the backyard of the Pharisees, and he's going to go north up into Galilee. He's just getting ahead of, he's staying on schedule, if you will. Jesus sets the schedule. And then in verse 4, and he had to pass through Samaria. He had to pass through Samaria. Now, let's just stop right there. You're going to have to hang back and, and just chill out for a moment. To really understand or appreciate what's going on here in John chapter 4, you need to understand the background of this dynamic between Jews and Samaritans. And there's about a thousand years of history that goes into that. So just hang back a little bit. Let me give you the short version. Jews hated Samaritans and Samaritans hated Jews. And there's about a thousand years of history behind that hatred. It really started before there was such a thing as Samaritans. You can go all the way back a thousand years before Christ at the divided kingdom. When King Solomon died, the nation of Israel split. And we have 10 tribes in the north that rebelled against the southern tribes in the house of David. So we have 10 tribes in the north that would become the northern kingdom, Israel. And then two tribes in the south, Benjamin and Judah, who remained loyal to the house of David and to the city of Jerusalem. And so they would comprise the southern kingdom, Judah. And so basically we have a civil war a thousand years before Christ, this, this, this rift in the nation. And the folks from the north hate the folks from the south, and the south, folks from the south resent the people from the north. So it really starts there. Now let's fast forward. In the 8th century BC, God is going to judge particularly the nation of Israel, that northern kingdom, those 10 tribes to the north. He's going to judge them for their unrepentant idolatry for their stubbornness, their refusal to repent and turn to him and worship him only. So God uses the Assyrian empire to bring that judgment. Here's what the Assyrians would typically do, the Assyrian army. They would move into a, to a, to a country. They would conquer that country. They would take much of that population and displace them and transplant them somewhere else, far away. Then they would take other conquered peoples from other lands bring them and transplant them into this new conquered territory. And what that does is it shuffles the deck. And so it dilutes cultural identity, ethnic identity, racial identity. It just muddies the water and it makes real hard to, to, for insurrection, for revolt, for people to unite against the Assyrians. And so that, that was what they would do. That's what happened in Israel. In 722 BC, God brought the Assyrian army into Israel. They conquered the land of Israel, took most of the Jewish population, transplanted them somewhere else. Then they brought people from five other nations and dropped them in the land of Israel. Over time, the Jews that were left behind, the Jews that didn't get carried off into exile, they began to intermarry with these other foreigners from other nations, other cultures, other races, and we end up with a mixed race and a mixed culture. And that's where the Samaritan race comes from. Fast forward. In the 6th century BC, God's going to similarly judge the southern kingdom of Judah for their unrepentant idolatry. This time he uses the Babylonian empire to do the same thing. 
So the Babylonians come in, they invade Jerusalem and Judah, destroy the temple, destroy the city of Jerusalem, and take a bunch of the Jews into Babylonian exile. They're POWs in exile in Babylon. Later in that century, God brings some of those Jews back, just like he said he would, and they begin to rebuild Jerusalem, and eventually, let's rebuild the temple. Some Samaritans come down to help. Hey, we want to help you all build a temple. And Ezra, there's a book in in your Bible called Ezra, Ezra and other Jewish leaders said, thanks, but no thanks. This ain't your party. You're not even Jews. This is our house. And so they were uninvited. Thanks, but no thanks. So later on, those Samaritans decided, we'll just build our own temple. So they go up on Mount Gerizim and they build their own temple on Mount Gerizim. So that's going to be their place of worship. Now, how do you reconcile that with the Bible? Because in the Bible, God chose the city of, uh, of David, the city of Jerusalem. That's where his temple is going to be and so forth. Well, they did what people do today. When you don't like what the Bible says, just ignore it, <laughs> uh, revise it, refute it, get rid of it. So that's what the Samaritans did. So everything in the Bible after Moses, they just discarded. So the writings and the prophets, eh, we don't have that. They just took the book of Moses, the books of Moses, the first five books, the Pentateuch, and then they tweaked those a little bit. So now you have the Samaritan Pentateuch, the first five books, and a Samaritan version of it. So now they have their own scriptures, their own temple, basically their own religion and their own priesthood. And it's all a a rival against what's going on in Jerusalem and the Jews. Bad blood. Let's fast forward. In 128 BC, the Jewish high priest, John Hyrcanus, led... A, a, a Jewish military into Samaria. They attacked Samaria, destroyed the capital city of Samaria, and destroyed the temple at Gerizim, the Samaritan temple. They destroyed the temple. And the Jews ruled Samaritans. You imagine how that went over. That was until the Romans showed up. And when the Romans came in, they ruled everybody. So now the Samaritans are ruled by the Romans. At least they don't answer to Jews anymore. In A.D. 6, when Jesus was just a little boy, some Samaritans came to Jerusalem during Passover week and desecrated the Jerusalem temple by scattering human bones in the temple. Desecrating, making it unfit for worship during Passover. Get the idea? Bad blood. Jews hate Samaritans. Samaritans hate Jews. For Jews, Samaritans are not Jews. They Racially, they are a hybrid race. They're not racial Jews anymore. Religiously, they are infidels. They are heretics. They have their own religion. They're not Jewish in religion. They're not Jewish in race. Uh, they're, they're not Jews. They're not Gentiles either. I mean, for a Jew, there are two kinds of folks. There are Jews and they're Gentiles. And then there's Samaritans. <laughs> They're kind of a third kind, a tertium quid, a, a third kind. Now, in the back of your Bible, you probably have a map of Palestine in, in Jesus' day. And what you need to understand is that there's a Jewish population in the south, that's Judah, around Jerusalem and that whole region down from Jerusalem to the Dead Sea, that's Judah. North of Judah, you have Samaria, that's where the Samaritans live. And beyond Samaria, we have another Jewish population, and that's Galilee. They're around the Sea of Galilee. So you have basically a Samaritan sandwich. So you have Jews in the south, Samaritans in the middle, and Jews on uh, above in Galilee. So for Jews, if a Jew wanted to go from Jerusalem to Galilee, for example, 
you could go through Samaria, but that's a good way to get jumped. I mean, that's just, unless you're going with a, with a big group of folks, that's, that's just a good way to get mugged and get hurt. It's also a religious thing. Jews don't like Samaritans. Jews don't have any dealings with Samaritans. They are unclean. They're, I mean, they're like Gentiles. And so what Jews would typically do, if they're going back and forth from Galilee to Judah, they, would, they wouldn't go through Samaria. They'd go to the Jordan River and then go up or come down. Or they would even cross the Jordan River, go into Perea, and then go up and come back into Galilee. But totally, I mean, you just bypass Samaria because Jews hate Samaritans. Samaritans hate Jews. Now, look at verse 4. Jesus is going from Galilee, from Judah in the south. He wants to go to Galilee in the north. Samaria is in the middle. And he says, and he had to pass through Samaria. He didn't have to logistically. Nobody did that. He didn't have to practically, but it was a matter of divine necessity. And, and in the language of the New Testament, it's that same word for must. It was necessary. You must. The scriptures must be fulfilled. These things must come to pass. You must be born again. It's a divine necessity. Not a practical necessity. Not a logical necessity. It's a divine necessity. Here's the point. Here's your outline. Jesus is following the Father's agenda. He sets the schedule, and he's following the Father's agenda. Why does he have to go through Samaria? Because the Father wants him to go through Samaria. He, he, he does what the Father tells him to do. He says what the Father has given him to say. He's following the Father's agenda. And so he's going to pass through Samaria. That's big. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. That's noon. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it you being a Jew ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who said to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So now we move from bad blood to bad manners. Jesus is breaking all kinds of protocol. <laughs> He's breaking all kinds of social norms. I mean, this is just bad. I mean, it's bad manners. This is rude, crude, socially unacceptable. He is, first of all, he, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So here's a Jewish man talking to a Samaritan. You don't do that. Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. We have a man talking to a woman. You don't do that. That's rude and crude. You, I mean, you just don't do that. In fact, a man wouldn't even talk to his wife in public. Men and women don't interact in public. And then you sure don't interact with a, with a strange woman, a woman who's not your wife. And the last thing any self-respecting rabbi would do, a Jewish leader, a Jewish religious teacher, is to speak to a Samaritan woman. And a Samaritan woman, Jews considered Samaritan women, perpetually unclean. They are always religiously defiling. And for Jesus to drink from her water skin, hey, give me a drink. For him to drink from her water skin would defile him ceremonially. He would be, he would be rendered unclean. So Jesus is just breaking all kinds of rules. I mean, bad manners all the way around. Here's what I want you to see. Here's a takeaway. Jesus doesn't see categories. He sees people. He sees people. Our world loves to divide people into categories. And that is, I mean, our culture is going plumb crazy with this stuff right now. It's all categories. 
What categories do you fit in? And it's us and them and, and our kind and their kind and your kind, and it's all categories. Folks, it's not good. It's destroying our country, but it's not new. It's the history of the world. It's always been us and them and them and us, and it's just, it's just the history of the world. But notice, Jesus doesn't see categories. He doesn't see a Samaritan. doesn't see a woman. He doesn't see unclean. He sees a person. And he interacts with a person, someone he loves, and he will die on the cross to save. He sees people, not categories. Well, it's interesting when you look at John 3 and John 4 side by side. I mean, John put all these things together for us that we might see that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God. And in John 3, we have Jesus talking to Nicodemus. And in John 4, we have Jesus talking to the woman at the well. And these two people couldn't be more different. I mean, it's amazing. Andreas Kostenberger kind of sets them side by side in, in a contrast. Nicodemus, in John chapter 3, Nicodemus is a man. She's a woman. Nicodemus was a Jew. She is a Samaritan from a hated hybrid race. Nicodemus was a teacher of Israel. She is unnamed. Nicodemus is a member of the Sanhedrin, the religious elite. She is a nobody. Um, Nicodemus knew the scripture. She is mired in folklore and tradition. Nicodemus is the epitome of morality. She is an immoral person. We'll see that in a moment. Nicodemus comes by night, and this lady meets Jesus at high noon. So interesting. Two very, very different people uh, side by side. Well, there's bad manners. Then we get some bad reception. In verse 10, Jesus answered, said, If you knew the gift of God and who it is says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So he said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. So here we have bad reception. One of the things that we've already seen in John and we'll keep seeing in John is this theme of misunderstanding. Remember, John loves double meanings. He likes irony and this theme of misunderstanding where Jesus will say things on one level and people don't get it. I mean, just it just goes right over their head. Like in John chapter 3 when Jesus tells Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you've got to be born again. Born again? How does that work? You can't go into your mama's womb all over again, can you? Be born a second time? Nicodemus is stuck in the physical world, the mundane. Jesus isn't talking about that. He's talking about a spiritual reality, being born from above, spiritual, eternal life. Same thing here. Jesus isn't talking about water that you drink. He's talking about eternal life, a spiritual life, a spiritual vitality that God gives and that it comes from within the person by the power of God. But she's stuck in water that comes out of a well that you drink out of a water skin and so forth. So there's this bad reception. But what I want you to see is that Jesus is the source of that living water. He's the source of eternal life. If you knew who it was who's asking you for a drink, you'd be asking him for a drink. Not of water, but of living water. Eternal life. That's what Jesus is talking about. That brings us to some bad behavior in verse 16. He said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you've correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. 
Now, notice that Jesus doesn't belabor the point of the living water. Oh, no, no, you misunderstand me. I'm not talking about water you drink. I'm talking about eternal life and spiritual. He, doesn't, he just stops there and he changes tack. And now Jesus exposes her immoral lifestyle. He exposes her need for a Savior. What she needs to know is she needs a Savior, and Jesus is that Savior. That's where he's going to take her next. So he says, why don't you go get your husband? Oh, I have no husband. I know. You've had five husbands. Now, Jewish, Jew, the Jewish teachers said that a, a, respect, a respectable Jewish woman, she's not a Jew, she's a Samaritan, but a respectable Jewish woman should not have more than three husbands in her lifetime. Now, granted, women didn't really have the power of divorce, the right of divorce. That was, his, that was his prerogative. He could divorce her. But at any rate, a woman shouldn't have more than three husbands in her lifetime. That should, that should, that should be it. Here, she's blown that out of the water. She's had five, and the guy she's with now is not her husband. They're not married. This is an immoral lifestyle. And Jesus is just exposing that. He draws that out of her. And he's doing that to show that she needs eternal life. She needs this living water. She needs the Messiah, and he's going to let her see he is the Messiah. Here's your outline. We need to see our need. We need to see our need. This is probably why this lady is drawing water at high noon. Drawing water is a woman's work. That's, that's her job. That's what the women do. And they would typically come, and it's hard work. She would come usually in the morning or in the evening, the cool of the day. That's when you go draw water. She's out here at high noon. Now, the text doesn't say this is why she's there at high noon, but we can assume she's probably there to avoid the other women in town because she doesn't need the snide remarks and the sneers and the gazes and the hisses because she's, she's that kind of woman with that kind of past and that kind of a lifestyle, so she just doesn't need the aggravation. She's there at high noon. But Jesus reveals that immoral lifestyle. We need to see our need. You know, Sometimes the first, start, the first step in getting saved is getting lost. <laughs> you have to understand you need saving. Sometimes that's the hardest part of getting somebody saved is getting them lost. Oh, no, I'm not lost. I'm a good person. I'm a Christian. My parents are Christians. I've been raised in church. I got baptized. I do this. Oh, yeah, I'm going to heaven when I die. I'll tell you one thing. I'm better than a lot of those folks who go to church down there. I'll tell you that right now. So I'm better than most people. I'll be all right. Sometimes the hardest part of getting somebody saved is getting them lost to help them to see their need for a Savior. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, every one of us. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way. There's none righteous, no, not one. We all need to be saved. Everyone must be born again. We need Jesus Christ. So Jesus reveals her, her, her need for a Savior, and she says, I, I perceive you are a prophet. I mean, how could somebody know what he knows? I perceive you're a prophet. That leads to uh, bad theology. Verse 20. She says, our fathers worshipped in this mountain, Mount Gerizim. They're probably less than half a mile away from, the Mount, from Mount Gerizim. You probably see the temple remains. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming. And now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. A very common approach to this text and interpretation here is that the woman is changing the subject. When Jesus says, oh, you know, go get your husband. Oh, I don't have a husband. Oh, yeah, I know. You've had five husbands. And now you're shacking up with some dude. And so she, that's uncomfortable. So she changes the subject. So that's enough about me. Why don't we talk about this raging debate between Jews and Samaritans and where you ought to go to church? And so she's changing the subject. 
Maybe. Maybe not. Maybe she's under conviction. And maybe, you know, Jesus has exposed her lifestyle. She needs forgiveness. She needs to get right with God. And the next step is, well, how do I do that? I perceive you're a prophet. You must be someone who can speak for God. How do I get right with God? So this may be what's, what's steering the conversation. How do I get right with God? Now, for her, getting right with God means offering a sacrifice to God. So do we go up on Mount Gerizim? It's just right there. Do I go up there and offer a sacrifice? Is that how I get right with God? But you're a prophet. You know things about me that nobody else could possibly know. Do, do you say I need to go to Jerusalem to offer a sacrifice? How do I get right with God? And if that's the case, then this debate, this theological debate between Samaritans and Jews and, and Jerusalem and Mount Gerizim, this isn't ivory tower hypothetical, theoretical stuff to hash out over a cup of coffee. Now this is real and this is personal and this is urgent. How do I get right with God? And Jesus said, well, first of all, you Samaritans, you're doing it all wrong. <laughs> you got, you're doing it wrong. You worship what you don't know. You're, you're worshiping the wrong God, the wrong way, in the wrong place. You got the wrong scriptures. You got bad theology and you're doing it wrong. Wrong theology will lead to wrong worship. And wrong belief will lead to wrong behavior. That's why it matters what you believe. Wrong theology leads to wrong worship and wrong behavior. And he says, but we worship what we know. The Jews are on the right track. At least we got the word of God. And we're worshiping God as he has, as he has prescribed worship. And salvation will come from the Jews, not the Samaritans. It's going to come from the Jews, a Jewish Messiah. It's going to come from the Jews. So, and then that leads us to better days. But then he says in verse 23, An hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The hour is coming, and now is, when worship is not going to be determined by geographical location. It's not about Mount Gerizim or Mount Moriah. It's not about here or there. It's not about a temple but you will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The hour is coming and now is. Here it is. True worshipers worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, when Jesus says you worship him in spirit, it does not say in the spirit. He's not talking about the Holy Spirit. He's talk, he just says you have to worship God in spirit. He is spirit and you worship him in spirit. That means it comes from the inner man. It's not about a place and exercise, external details or external rituals you worship him in spirit it comes from the inner man it comes from the heart you worship God in spirit it was true when Jesus said it it's true today worship comes from the heart you worship God in spirit you could go to the Jerusalem temple and you can go through all the steps of prescribed worship and never worship God you could come to a Baptist church and not worship God. I mean, you could get here early, and you could listen to the whole service. You could sing all the songs, and you could take all the notes and fill in all the blanks and put some money in the offering plate, and you could leave and never have worshipped in spirit and in truth. It's an internal thing. Now, when you're worshiping God in spirit, all those external things can be an expression of what's going on in your heart. So now you're not just mouthing the words to a song, but you're actually singing praises to God from the heart. Now it's worship. Now it's not just singing, it's worship. 
And when you're worshiping God from your heart, you can hear God's word as an act of worship because I'm receiving his word and celebrating his word and his truth from the heart. When you put money in the offering plate, I'm not just putting money in the offering plate. Now I'm giving to God out of a spirit of worship. You worship God in spirit and in truth. We worship God in truth, his truth, the truth that he has revealed. His truth, his revelation informs our worship and we worship the God of truth and light of the truth that he has revealed along the way. So we worship him in spirit and in truth. That's how we must worship. And then in verse 25, it says, The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now the Samaritans were looking for a Messiah of sorts, but it wasn't the Jewish Messiah. The Jews were looking for this this military political leader like a King David who's going to come in, he's going to take charge, we're going to get rid of the Romans, he's going to restore national sovereignty, and he's going to bring back the glory days of King David and King Solomon. That's what they thought the Messiah should do. The Samaritans were looking for a prophet who would come like Moses, and this messianic prophet figure would come and and answer questions and teach and reveal truth and restore things. So that's kind of the Messiah that they were looking for. And so that's what she's echoing. Hey, one day, hey, the Messiah is going to come, and when he comes, he'll declare all things to us. And then Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. That's a terrible translation. Here's what it sounds like in the Greek. I am the one speaking to you. I am. Ego me. I am. We're going to hear that several times in the Gospel of John. The I am statements in John. Now sometimes it's I'm the bread of life. I'm the light. I am the resurrection. I. But here it's I am. That echoes God's self-revelation of himself to Moses back in the Old Testament. God, they're not going to believe me. When I say God sent me to them, they're not going to believe me. Who, who should I say sent me? God said, you tell them, I am sent you. He's the I am God. So here Jesus says, I am. Boy, all that stuff starts coming back. I am the one who's speaking to you. In other words, I am the Messiah. I'm the one you've been looking for. I am he. I am the Messiah. Jesus very rarely identified himself as Messiah to his Jewish audience because of all the baggage that came with it. Because they think the Messiah is going to be political, military. I mean, they just they got wrong expectations, and Jesus doesn't want to fuel that. He doesn't want to buy into that. So he would call himself other titles with messianic overtones like Son of Man. That was his favorite title. But here, Jesus says to a Samaritan woman, the most unlikely person in the world, an immoral Samaritan woman, I am the Messiah. I am the one. I'm the Messiah you've been looking for. Here's your takeaway point. He's the one you're looking for too. He's the one you've been looking for. Something's missing from your life, you're going to find it in Jesus. You want answers, you're going to find it in Jesus. There's the thing you want, you're going to find it in Jesus. He's the one you've been looking for. And then there's better food. We need to keep going. There's a better food. At this point, his disciples came, and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Again, you just don't do that. Yet no one said, what do you seek, or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, 
Come see a man who told me all the things that I've done. This is not the Christ, is it? And they went out of the city and were coming to him. So she drops what she's doing. She goes to town and she starts bringing a crowd out to meet Jesus. Meanwhile, back at the well, the disciples were urging Jesus, saying, Rabbi, eat. Jesus said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him to eat anything to eat, did he? <laughs> Remember, they went to town to buy groceries. That's why Jesus is alone at the well. They went to town to get something for him to eat, come back. He said, I'm good. I've got food you don't know about. We just went to town to get something for you to eat. He said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. There again, there's that misunderstanding. <laughs> Jesus is talking about one thing. They're thinking about something else. My food is to do the will of him that sent me and to accomplish his work. Doing God's will, here's your outline, is, is nourishing and satisfying. It's better than food, better than bread, better than eating. Following God, obeying God, serving God, doing his will, doing his work is better than food. And then there's a better harvest. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. You think there's four months to the harvest? No, the harvest is now. Now, Jesus isn't talking about crops. He's talking about people. And it may be that as they see the Samaritans, you know, the lady went into town. Hey, y'all got to come see this guy. And so as they're coming, we can just imagine. We don't know, but we can just imagine. Here comes these town folks, and Jesus says, the harvest. Behold, the fields are white unto harvest. Here they come. So there's a better harvest. Here's, here's your outline. One sows, another reaps, both rejoice. One sows, another reaps, but both rejoice. Paul uses the same kind of language in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God is causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Sometimes you are sowing and watering, sharing the gospel teaching God's word, and you don't see any visible results, no visible progress, you're sowing and you're watering. Other times, you're reaping, and you're there when they say yes to Jesus Christ, or you're there when they have a breakthrough and there's forward progress in, in their discipleship, in their walk with the Lord, a new level of commitment or obedience, and you get to see visible results. Sometimes you're sowing and watering, sometimes you get to reap. Um, we're going to have a, a baptism here in the next service. Sometimes when we have a, a, like a teenager getting baptized, an older child or a teenager, I don't always do this, but sometimes if they grew up in church, a lot of times I'll ask the folks in, in the congregation, if you've invested in this child, how many of you, you taught this child somewhere along the way? Maybe it was in preschool, maybe it was vacation Bible school, maybe you had them in Awana, maybe you worked with them in youth, you went on a retreat with them, but somewhere along the way, you invested in this child. Would you raise your hand or stand up? And usually it's quite a few folks if they've grown up in church. Now, they didn't, let's say they're 14 years old. I was saved when I was 14. Let's say you're 14. They didn't just walk into church one day, 14 years old, ding, lights came on, got saved. Typically, that's not how it works. Usually, it's been a long time coming. 
And they may have grown up in a Christian home where mom and dad love the Lord and talk, talk about the Lord and live out their faith in front of their kids and bring their kids to church. And for all these years, they were in preschool, Sunday school, and preschool teachers loved them and taught them the stories of God's Word at an appropriate age level. And then children's teachers did the same thing, and they were in Awana, and they learned the Scriptures, and they heard the plan of salvation, and they did vacation Bible school, and they were part of the youth group. And then when the Holy Spirit began to convict and to call and draw them, they said yes to Jesus Christ. And some teacher or parent or somebody got to pray with them. Well, they got to reap. But a lot of folks have been sowing along the way. Sowing and watering and cultivating. It's a long process. One sows, another reaps, but they both rejoice. And we can all celebrate what God has done. Um, as you share the gospel with folks, sometimes you're sowing. I mean, you, you just, nothing, nothing happened. They don't, they don't say yes. They don't pray to receive Christ. Well, I might as well kid. I, I'm not good at this. You don't know that. You may just be sowing. You may be watering. You may be cultivating. And then one day... Somebody else comes along and, and they say yes to Jesus Christ. One who sows, one reaps, they both rejoice. Or you may be teaching Sunday school. You're working in Awana and you think, what am I doing? These kids don't listen to me. I'm not getting anywhere. Might as well be talking to the wall. You never know. Stay faithful. Hang in there. You're, just, you're sowing. You're watering. You're cultivating. And one day the harvest will come. And one sows, one reaps, they both rejoice. There's a better harvest. Well, we've got to keep going. And then there's a better witness. Then verse 39. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them. That's mind-boggling. Now that you know all about Jews and Samaritans, a thousand years of hatred, bad blood, resentment, prejudice, just, just you know, the parable of the Good Samaritan... There is no good Samaritan. That's the punchline of the parable. That's the inside joke. There is no good Samaritan. The only good Samaritan is a dead Samaritan. But it's the parable of the good Samaritan. But here's the Samaritans invite a Jew to stay with them for two days. No Samaritan would do that. No Jew would accept that invitation. Jesus did. And he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Now that you know what you know, now you see the climax. If the show began with that, with that episode, what? Jesus is in a Samaritan village and a bunch of Samaritans come out and say, that guy's the Savior of the world. How did that happen? How in the world would we ever get here? Now you know. You know, now, you remember why John wrote all this? John chapter 20. These things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing have life in his name. That's why John put this down. So you might know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you might have life in his name. And as John writes this down, he calls forth several witnesses attesting to the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Here's two more witnesses. The most unlikely evangelist ever, an immoral Samaritan woman, that kind of woman. And she goes and she brings a whole town out to meet Jesus. She's an amazing evangelist. And the most unlikely witness, a Samaritan village. I mean, try to put that in our context. Let's, let's say, you know, let's say it was a, a Hindu village 
where nobody worships God. They worship, you know, all their Indian, uh, Hindu village. And they come out and say, Jesus is the Savior of the world. What? Or ISIS-K. It's a, a, a camp of ISIS. And they all come out and say, oh, no, Jesus is the Savior of the world. What? Samaritans come out and say, this Jew, this Jewish preacher, this guy, now we know he's the Savior of the world. He's not just the Savior of the Jews. He's the Savior of the world, including Samaritans. That's amazing. He is the Savior of the world, and he wants to save you. Have you been saved? Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ loves you. He died for you. He, he paid the penalty for your sins. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We, all, we need to see our need. He was buried. He was raised again. He's alive today. And he offers you the gift of eternal life. That living water that will satisfy, that comes from within, that will satisfy the deepest longings and needs of your heart and your life. He offers you eternal life, a personal relationship with God that lasts forever. If you'll repent and believe on him. Turn from your sin and self. Turn to your faith. Put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Have you been saved? If not, or if you're not sure, if you have questions, or if you know you want to be, I invite you to come. In a moment, we'll stand up and sing our hymn of decision. I'll be right here. I invite you to come to me and say, Preacher, I need Jesus. I want to be saved. Or Tell me how. We'd love to have a private conversation with you. We won't pressure you. We won't embarrass you. We'll just talk with you privately, pray with you if you'd like to, but you can leave here today knowing your sins are forgiven and heaven is your home and Jesus is your Savior. We invite you to come. Say yes to Jesus Christ this morning. If you're already saved, we need to work real hard at not seeing categories. We need to see people. Again, we have a culture that wants us to see categories, thinking categories, break off into your little categories. We need to say no. We need to see people the way Jesus sees people. Not categories, but as sheep who are lost, having no shepherd. People who are lost and who need Jesus. People whom God loves and for whom Christ died. We need to see people the way God sees people. And then we need to do what this woman did. Go invite people. Come and see. you got, you got to come meet Jesus. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for inspiring John to write this down. Thank you so much for preserving for us this, this episode in the ministry of Christ. A conversation between Jesus and this unnamed woman at the well. And the response of, of, her, of her townspeople to say that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Thank you for this. And I pray that you'd seal this message to our hearts this morning. And I pray especially for the one who's never been saved. Maybe they think they're good enough or better than some or whatever. But God, help them to see their need. That they are lost without hope, without God in the world. That they must be born again. That except a man be born again, and cannot see the kingdom of God. Lord, bring them to the cross even now. Help them to see their sin and your son and your love. Lord, I pray that you would help us as your people to not play the world's game, seeing people in categories, but that we would see people the way you see people, and that we would love them the way you love them. Just take charge of this time of a decision. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.